Good evening, everybody. Um, my name is um, Paul Miners. I was a minister in the uh, last Labour government involved in the uh, resolution of the uh, banking crisis. Uh, I'm just going to say a few words of introduction um, to uh, hand over then to Howard Davis, the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, uh, who will be talking about his latest book, The Financial Crisis, and then Robert Peston, uh, who is known to us all, I expect, if not personally, from uh, the BBC, uh, will respond, and then we will throw uh, the uh, issue open uh, for general discussion, debate, and questions with a plan to finish at around about 7.45 or, or somewhat close to it. Um, the, uh, the Queen came to um, the LSE in November 2008 um, to open a new building. And in the course of her tour around the school, she asked Professor Lucius Garciano um, why no one saw the origins of the crisis. Um, Howard's book is an attempt to explain the origins and the involvement of the financial crisis of the last two or three years. And he digs into the depth of the issues. I used to think it was a bit like a Russian doll. Every time you took the, uh, the outer doll off, there was another doll inside which gave you a further explanation. Uh, Gordon Brown always stopped at the doll that said it was all America's fault was subprime, <laughs> and there was no need um, to go any further. Howard is uh, extraordinarily well qualified to, uh, to do this work. Um, he um, is, uh, is experienced not only in academia, but uh, through his involvement as an independent director on the boards of investment banks and asset managers. He was, of course, a regulator, the first chairman and chief executive of the Financial Services Authority, and a deputy governor of the, uh, the Bank of England. So uh, Howard has his finger in every part um, of this pie. I think the book's a fascinating read. Um, there are very few heroes in the book. Um, Brooksy Bourne who was the chairman of the CFTC in the late 1990s, comes out as a hero through her observations about derivatives. The list of those who are culpable is slightly longer. Um, Alan Greenspan regularly features um, as uh, having failed to miss things, and of course he created the famous Greenspan put, uh, which certainly had a contributory role to play um, in the crisis. Central banks in general, because they were targeted on inflation in prices rather than bubbles uh, in assets, uh, were clearly again slow uh, to realize uh, some of the risks that were building up in the system. As far as people in an academic institution are concerned, uh, economists um, don't come out of this too well either. Um, the freshwater school uh, of economists uh, in Chicago um, clearly lulled us all into a false sense of security about markets on a presumption that liquidity would always be available and therefore we could rely upon um, markets. Indeed, uh, Howard um, explores issues around other academic issues including the efficient market hypothesis and the capital asset pricing model. Um, no uh, constituency is left uh, beyond criticism by Howard in his book. Um, even journalists, Robert, um, you have to wait uh, till chapter 35 um, before journalists get the blame and before you make an appearance. I, I'm sure you're already aware that actually you come out of the book quite well, although in Howard's usual style is a slightly backhanded compliment that you are slightly slow in spotting things, but when you realized what was going on, you were pretty good um, in reporting on it thereafter. Howard's own contribution... 
rather fun. like the people who read the scores at the end of the match rather than comment on it during it. Um, Howard's own views are, are quite well concealed throughout the book. Um, they're nuanced in places, heavily concealed in, in others. But if you wait until chapter 39, you find that he actually summarizes his views in four and a half pages, and I imagine that that's what Howard is going to do now. My final comment is, I, as I read through this book, how many of the causes of the problem have still not been fully addressed. There are still some very, very fundamental issues in terms of global economic imbalances, the direction of monetary policy, the relationship between regulators, behaviours and cultures within organisations which still have not been properly and fully addressed and therefore still leave us vulnerable to a repeat of the sort of crisis that we experienced. Howard. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you very much for coming along to uh, chair. Uh, I always feel that even though uh, I'm at home, so to speak, that if I'm speaking, it's not quite right for me to chair myself. It reminds me of when at the FSA I was always being accused of judge and jury in my own cause, not what we now hear, of course. But, um, and also thanks to Robert for agreeing to come to talk to a much smaller audience than you usually talk to at 6 o'clock uh, in, uh, in the evening. Um, now, I think that uh, Paul has kind of set the background, uh, but I think it is reasonable to ask why bother at this point, three years after the crisis first erupted on the 9th of August 2007, why bother to try to ask this question? Surely there's been enough uh, discussion of it so far. Well, I think there are three reasons. One is that this failure oddly has many parents. The failure of this financial crisis, I think, is rather unusual in that normally when you get a disaster, whether it's a man-made disaster or a natural disaster, you begin with a wide range of theories, often conspiracy theories about why this has happened, and then gradually as you get to know more about it, you home in on a more central explanation. I think that the financial crisis has been actually the reverse. Uh, Paul's analogy of the Russian doll is one, but I mean, it, you find a proliferation um, of uh, arguments that have developed since the origins. If we'd been talking here three years ago and someone said, well, what's the financial crisis about? People would have said quite easily, well, it's about subprime mortgages. But we don't think that now. Some of the supposed parents of this failure are, I think, illegitimate. And I think some of them uh, have preoccupied politicians for quite a long time and are not much to do with the case. And I guess that will emerge as I go through. There's also, as a result of this proliferation, a serious risk, I think, of displacement activity and of false comfort of thinking that because we've solved one particular thing that the whole thing has now been resolved. And so I think it is important to look broadly. And also, of course, I think we do have to remind ourselves that the financial, the social and economic costs of this crisis have been absolutely enormous. And there are a lot of people out there, notably the 15 million people who don't have jobs who did before, um, who are still rather interested in why this should have happened uh, to them. Around the world, um, and I've talked to people around the world about what they think and looked at the various surveys about what people think the crisis um, came from, you find a remarkable diversity uh, of opinion. I actually delivered a, a similar sort of lecture in Sciences Po, our partner school, just last week, um, and looked at what the French think. And more than 90% of French are absolutely clear uh, that the uh, most uh, culpable <laughs> are American banks, it's absolutely <laughs> certain followed by the American government, uh, banks in general, and the capitalist system. Over 90% of French think that's, uh, that that's the case. Uh, if you look at the UK, but you compare the UK, interestingly, with India, where I 
uh, talked recently, you can see that here, not surprisingly, we think that bankers are more responsible because we've seen uh, the problems with banks in our own country. 89% think that this is rather important. Now, but interestingly, only 16% of people in this country think that economic policies in China had anything to do with it, whereas 38% of the Indians do. And in this case, maybe the Indians are onto something uh, which we perhaps don't bother about. As for the Americans, well, you'd think that they would have the clearest view. Well, the Americans, particularly the Democrats, think it was the Jews. Um, because um, <laughs> at least this was a Boston... A review survey which says 32% of Democrats believe that the Jews caused the financial crisis. So, uh, uh, you know, we're in interesting territory uh, there. So, in this book, I've attempted to try to parse all these things. Um, and to be clear about uh, what it is, uh, this is not a Hutton-type tirade. Uh, it's not a pest and polemic. Um, it's not a patent remedy. It's instead a taxonomy of 38 theories about the crisis, some of which I think are uh, undoubtedly well-founded, some of which I think are not, and some I'm genuinely unsure about. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, that they are. this is a useful guide to people who'd like to think their own way through it. Um, and indeed, maybe... I should accept, um, should accept bids for adding to this 38, because I'm quite sure there are people who think 39 would have been better, actually, the 39 articles, 40 would have been neat and tidy, and if we could find 50, I could then wave my bat at the crowd and retire, which would be uh, a good outcome. So if anybody has any additional ones, then bring them in. The way I parse this is that uh, you have, we did develop a combustible mixture here. And I look first at the macro conditions and some of the arguments about the macroeconomic background to the crisis, some of the issues about the trigger, just why did it happen at that particular time, the dozing watchdogs uh, who were the regulators, why were they not doing more, what people like all the complicit controllers, which is the people like accountants and auditors and rating agencies, the people inside the financial system, if you like, not the regulators, but who were supposed to do something uh, to control what was going on. And then, of course, there are the people we must now know as crooks and spiffs, um, which uh, before last week we used to call bankers. Um, <laughs> uh, and what did they do? Uh, and then, of course, uh, there's the economists and the finance theorists, uh, the people who peddled rational expectations. And then there are a few wild cards uh, at the end. So beginning with the macroeconomic conditions, it does seem to me that this has got to have something to do with, uh, uh, with it. As, as Bernanke said, it's impossible to understand the crisis without reference to the global imbalances in trade and capital flows which began in the latter half of the 1990s. And I think it is quite striking just how dramatically those imbalances uh, developed. At the top half, we see the Chinese and the oil exporting surpluses, and in the bottom half, the green bar, is the American uh, deficit. And this, I did, do think, created a wave of liquidity, what we often call a savings glut, that there was a wave of investment back into the United States in particular, but also into other Western European countries, which I think did uh, bid down um, the yields on risky assets. But the question that remains very controversial, although most people would accept that the global imbalances have had something to do with it, is whether the response of the monetary authorities was appropriate or not. And here we have a high degree of controversy with John Taylor of the eponymous rule arguing that there was clear evidence of monetary excesses during the period leading up to the housing boom and he points to uh, the Fed's uh, interest rates, the red line 
um, is where the Fed actually was, uh, and the center of this is where the Taylor rule would have put you. And the Taylor rule is a sort of well, uh, a rule that he has developed as a kind of way of describing the reaction function of central banks typically to uh, inflation and output. Um, and he argues from this that uh, the Fed's interest rate policy was significantly too weak. Uh, Greenspan is completely opposed to this idea and has recently published a long paper with the Brookings Institution which uh, attempts to rebut uh, Taylor's criticisms and says it was basically long-term interest rates that galvanized uh, home prices and asset prices, not the overnight rates of uh, central banks. I have to say that uh, my view is more towards the Taylor view than the Greenspan uh, view. And it seems to me also that Greenspan does not recognize the fact that the expansionary monetary policy in the United States was also behind the large U.S. Uh, deficit because it led to excess domestic demand, which widened the deficit. And on the other side, the pegged Chinese renminbi rate delivered the capital inflows into the United States, which those are those are which uh, the flows which influence long-term interest rates. And in fact, there's a very recent paper by uh, the Bank of Italy which argues that long-term interest rates were about 1% lower uh, as a result. Uh, and that seems to me that mechanism which uh, delivered also this sort of search for yield and bid down the, the yields on risky assets does seem to me to have been a very important part of the crisis. And Greenspan, interestingly in saying this, um, th there is a somewhat of an inconsistency, I think, in Greenspan's arguments here, because in addition to saying that it, interest rates didn't have anything to do with it, he also says um, that we shouldn't react anyway. Uh, and basically, uh, this controversy about dealing with asset price bubbles and credit bubbles is, remains, I think, very, very live in the central banking world. And essentially, I would parse this into saying that there are three points of view. There's the Greenspan point of view where he says, unless it's a societal choice to abandon dynamic markets and leverage for some form of central planning, preventing bubbles will be infeasible. And the best you can do is mop up after the event. There is a second strand of opinion, which I think has had uh, more support recently, which originally was associated with academics, with economists at the BIS, uh, Bill White, Claudio Borio, and others, uh, who argue that, that monetary policy should explicitly lean against the wind. That in addition to focusing on short-term inflation, you should have clear metrics of financial stability, and that those should influence monetary policy from time to time. Clearly, lots of issues about precisely how you design those metrics, precisely how you determine when asset prices are out of line and when credit is expanding too rapidly, but nonetheless that should be part of your monetary policy. And then there's a third strand of opinion, which I think is more associated perhaps now with uh, Mervyn King, which is, yes, you should think about financial conditions and you should think about credit expansion, but actually to do that you need another tool that you don't use short-term interest rates for that tool, and the short-term interest rate should be targeted at inflation, but that you need an additional mechanism, that what is, goes under the jargon, macroprudential mechanism, though there are various different definitions of that, uh, which tighten financial conditions, and that should be probably increasing capital uh, in the banking system. And so you have a monetary policy tool and a fiscal a financial stability tool. The difficulty I see with the third argument is that in, there can be circumstances in which it's very hard to distinguish the effects of one from the other. Um, if you're talking about 
credit expansion in a particular market, perhaps in the mortgage market, then I can see that tightening capital ratios for mortgage lending can be an effective response to that. But if you're talking about a generalized expansion of credit, then uh, it seems to me that a generalized increase in capital ratios has rather the same economic effect in raising the price of credit as a rise in interest rates. And it's not clear to me that you shouldn't consider the two together. You may choose one or you may choose the other, but it seems to me that they are choices um, that have to be weighed uh, in the balance. And it seems to me that we're not uh, anywhere near the end of this debate, and we don't have a new formulation of inflation targeting um, which takes this financial stability issue into account. So this is an area, I think, where there is plenty more uh, debate to be had. But, of course, the fact that monetary conditions were quite loose, which I believe is, to be, uh, is really well established, uh, and that there was this wave of liquidity, doesn't necessarily mean uh, that people had to behave in the way that they did. It doesn't necessarily mean that there should have been so much uh, leverage and so much demand uh, for credit. And here we do face another mystery. Why did this uh, happen? Now, if you ask a lot of people in the financial sector about the crisis, they will say, well, if you want a one-word answer, it's leverage. Uh, that leverage grew rapidly, credit grew rapidly, but why did it grow? And there are some interesting arguments here which I think have not been fully bottomed. Uh, Joe Stiglitz, in a report for the UN, argues that the real driver of this, particularly in the United States, was stagnant real incomes, particularly in the middle of the income distribution. Uh, that rising inequality um, was very evident, the Gini coefficient rose very rapidly, uh, and median incomes actually stagnated. And the way in which those people maintained their living standards was by borrowing. Um, and this income inequality was offset by financial innovation in risk management and by lax monetary policy that increased the ability of households to finance consumption by borrowing. Uh, that therefore the impulse uh, of people in the United States particularly, but also here, uh, was to borrow and the financial sector made that possible uh, through product innovation which generated uh, additional uh, credit. I think this is quite a plausible argument, though perhaps it explains things in the United States rather better than it does explain here because we didn't have quite the same stagnation in median incomes as we had here. But whatever the source of this, the leverage in the financial system did grow extremely rapidly. We can see that uh, in bank balance sheets in the United States where banks' uh, leverage grew really very rapidly. And one of the striking things when you look at these numbers is just how fast this leverage grew in really quite a short period of time. This is just from 2000 to 2007. Uh, and the same was true in the UK. I particularly like this chart because I stopped being a regulator uh, about here. Uh, and uh, uh, that's, uh, it's rather comforting from my point of view. Um, but why uh, then this was what was going on. There was this sort of stimulus to maintain incomes and borrow. But again, I think one should avoid a kind of historicist and a sort of determinist approach to this. Why did, uh, were financial institutions prepared to do this? And why were the regulators not able to step in and prevent them? Why did the regulatory bumps in the road, if you like, not stop this careering uh, vehicle more effectively, or at least um, slow it down? So at that point, um, we need to ask ourselves what went wrong in regulation. And I think that it is now pretty clear in retrospect, and this is one area which I think there is a lot of consensus, is that there was too little capital in the system. Banks were allowed to operate uh, with too little capital, leverage grew, and revenues were inadequate to cover losses when asset prices fell. 
an additional dimension to it, which I also discuss in the book, is the regulatory arbitrage, where a lot of this leverage occurred actually off banks' balance sheets and therefore avoided capital requirements altogether. And the regulatory regime allowed banks to generate special purpose vehicles, which were apparently not obligations of the banks, but when the crisis hit, it was clear that they actually were, and they, those assets had to be collapsed back onto banks' balance sheets, either because in reality there was a legal recourse or a, a reputational issue, or because if the banks had not rescued those special purpose vehicles, there would have been an even further and more dramatic collapse of asset prices on their own balance sheets, uh, which would have been even worse for them. So effectively, these, asset, these vehicles were on banks' balance sheets and should have been regarded as such. We now do have, I think, uh, now a quite an effective uh, response. Uh, tier 1 capital under Basel III will increase rather sharply. The area which I think is particularly important uh, is the capital in the trading brook, because I think one lesson, horrible lesson that was learned by the regulators, but also by banks themselves, uh, was that there was risk in the trading book that they hadn't understood. I mean, typically, you know, we think of a banking book of long-term loans and trading book of assets, which are easily realizable, and we assumed that if you run into trouble in the trading book, well, you can sell. Uh, and in principle, you run both sides of the balance sheet down until you've got a small net plus or a small net minus, and you shut the shop and go home. But in practice, of course, in conditions of highly stressed liquidity, it was impossible to sell. And there were long-tail risks and big losses in those books for which there was no capital, uh, because the capital regime assumed that hedging strategies would work. That, and therefore, it was only the sort of supposed net risk that you were looking at. But actually, there were circumstances where hedging strategies did not work because correlations moved to one, so that what you looked like a hedge position was not a hedge position. There was a big risk, and there was no capital attached to it. I think that's a particularly important part of the reform, which people perhaps talk about less than they talk about the uh, increase in the Tier 1 capital. Now, of course, there's a big question here as to whether this will have as much, uh, this will have also some damaging effects on the ability of the system to generate credit and support recovery. We don't know the answer to that, I don't think. I mean, in the theory, Modigliani and Miller tells you it wouldn't necessarily increase the cost of credit because uh, it doesn't you, know, you can't increase or reduce your cost of capital just by the way the balance between equity and debt. Uh, I suspect that for several reasons, not least tax, that won't actually prove to hold and that, in fact, credit will be more expensive. But it's probably a price that we have to pay. A second um, regulatory issue that I do think is big and important, I'm not going to go into all of them, you're pleased to know, um, but is pro-cyclicality. But the capital rules tended to accentuate the cycle, allowing banks to hold less capital as asset prices rose. To some extent, this is inherent in the way in which you do capital regulation, because essentially what you do if you're a regulator, I'm the regulator and miners runs a bank, and I go in and say, show me your balance sheet, um, and I will look at that balance sheet, and then I will play that balance sheet back in time and say, how much money would the miners bank have lost at any point in the last 15 years or whatever you've got a decent run of figures for? And that loss must be the starting point for how much reserve the miners bank needs, which is a rational thing to do. Um, and you may add a bit for luck. Um, but, of course, if the Miners Bank is a British mortgage bank and had been operating in the 15 years up to the end of 2006, and even if um, he'd lent to some dodgy borrowers um, and had to repossess the houses, he would still have sold the houses at a profit. Uh, so he would never have lost any money, really, however bad his book was. And so just at the point when house prices were about to fall, this methodology would have told him that he didn't need any capital at all. And this is inherent in the backward-looking approach to 
setting capital requirements, and it seems to me that we have to find a way through that. Unfortunately, doing so is technically extremely difficult because it does require doing what regulators on the whole don't do, which is to make sort of judgments about whether prices are right in some sense or whether some level of leverage is appropriate. And it, deciding when you've got a bubble um, is not a straightforward thing. Uh, but I do think that we have to find a method uh, of uh, doing, dealing with that. And at the moment, we don't have one. There's a working group working away at it, but it does seem to me to be an absolutely central part uh, of the needed regulatory response. I'll skip over quite a lot of the other bits of um, regulation, uh, which are interesting in themselves, but perhaps not absolutely central. What about these complicit controllers? Well, here I think some of the arguments are not particularly useful, and some of them are important. There's quite a strong current of opinion, particularly in continental Europe, that fair value accounting um, was the problem, uh, that that accentuated the crisis and triggered uh, losses which were larger than they otherwise would be. I can't see much merit in this argument uh, myself, um, and it seems to me the last thing you want uh, is to conceal uh, what the true prices of assets really are. The auditors, however, who signed off on Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, it seems to me, uh, just a month or so before they went bust, saying that they were absolutely fine, um, seems to me to have more of a question to answer and slightly surprisingly uh, have not come in for as much criticism as I think perhaps they deserve. I mean, they were very much in the chocolate teapot territory in this crisis, absolutely useless. Um, and I think there are some questions to ask about just what the value uh, of bank audits uh, might be um, if they reveal absolutely nothing uh, just ahead of a total collapse. And the credit rating agencies, similarly, there is a serious problem here. Um, there is a fundamental problem of conflicts of interest, which I don't think has been resolved in anything that has been done since the crisis. I think the rating agencies did make a mistake um, in using the same scale for securitizations as they used for corporate credits. They had a decades of history um, which told them why a single-A corporate credit was a single-A corporate credit and what the default rate was likely on that. They had no history of securitized credits, particularly not CDO squared, uh, and yet they applied the same scale, which clearly implied that they did understand what the sort of probabilities of loss, and these behaved completely differently, of course, in conditions of stressed uh, liquidity. So I think there is uh, a serious set of issues there which have still not been resolved. But what about the um, firms uh, themselves? Uh, because even if you have very loose monetary uh, conditions and faulty monetary policy and pressure for credit um, from borrowers um, and uh, the ability to generate that credit uh, because the regulation may not be appropriate, uh, that doesn't mean you've got to do it. It doesn't mean you have to uh, lend uh, imprudently. Uh, and uh, therefore, of course, uh, it's reasonable to look to the financial sector itself uh, for a decent share of the responsibility. Now, of course, for a time in the public debate, we all thought we knew the answer. It was the dreaded vampire squid, um, which was that uh, Goldman Sachs, which, uh, you know, uh, for anybody involved in any other financial firm, Goldman's were terrific because they really <laughs> took the heat um, of uh, everybody else. Now, uh, some bits, I think, um, of the problem in the financial sector are pretty clear, uh, but other bits, I think, are much less clear. The bits that are clear, I think, are that risk management was weak. I mean, one way, I think, 
you can usefully put it, is that the technology of product innovation ran ahead of the technology of risk management. Uh, that banks were extremely inventive in devising products which had the appearance of slicing and dicing risk and allowing risk to be borne uh, and carried by those people who are best able to carry it, but nonetheless less good at working out just what the dynamics of those positions would be and just how those instruments would behave um, in stressed market conditions. I think that is kind of well understood. Uh, it's complicated, but I think it's quite well understood. But of course there is a big issue about why people did this and what is the sort of reason for it. Were these just mistakes? Or were the banks driven, in fact, um, by incentives that they had set up themselves um, to drive this process and that they were just making a huge amount of money out of it in a cynical way? Well, there are many different points of view about this. And indeed, in the official community, there is no consensus, I think, on this point. Uh, Geithner said what happened to compensation and incentives did contribute in some institutions to the vulnerability we saw. Adair Turner has said, while inappropriate remuneration structures played a role, they were considerably less important than inadequate approaches to capital accounting and liquidity. If we look at academic research, an interesting paper by Fallenbrock and Stultz says, there's no evidence that banks with CEOs whose incentives were better aligned with the interests of their shareholders, and that's in other words, you had the kind of long-term incentives plans that regulators are now insisting that all banks should have, there's no evidence that they performed better during the crisis, and indeed some evidence that these banks actually performed worse, uh, which is a rather depressing uh, conclusion if you think that aligning the incentives um, of managers with shareholders is the way through this problem. Uh, Lucien Bebchuk in uh, Harvard does think that there is more in this argument and that bankers have incentives to give insufficient weight to the downside of risky strategies and that equity-based compensation could be replaced with compensation based on the value of a broader basket of securities, including bonds. This is a point, actually, that Paul himself has uh, made, and I think there's something in that. Where do I come out on this? I think this is a very difficult one. I have to say that my own view would be that the particularly damaging effect of incentives was seen on trading floors and not so much at the level of the CEOs. And because the figures are available for CEOs, that tends to be where the academic researchers focused. I mean, that's what you can see because they're published in the accounts. What you can't see is the incentive structures for heads of particular trading desks. They are typically not disclosed and so far have not been uh, disclosed. It would be an interesting research project to work that out and maybe some banks would be prepared to disclose in due course. Um, but it seems to me that that also links into capital, in that if you look at where the big losses occurred and the really extravagant trading and high-risk strategies trading these complex instruments, it was precisely on the desks where the capital allocation was extremely low as well. And so it looked as if these were very low-risk positions generating large amounts of return. Why were they? And they were very large because there was no penalty for size because you were not being hit with any kind of capital charge or only a trivial one. And the people running those desks could generate very large income for themselves based on marking those positions to market at the end of the year where there could well be a big loss hiding in the long fat tail. And that area seems to me where the incentive stuff makes a difference and not so much at the CEO level. 
Because at the CEO level, the horrible thing it seems to me to be that you know, Dick Full believed that Lehman strategy was terrific and kept most of his assets in there. Uh, and so did Jimmy Kane at Bear Stearns. Uh, now, they'd taken some out in the past, but they did not seek to get out of those uh, institutions. They thought what they were doing was working fine. They thought it was fine. They thought they were going to do well, and they didn't. And I think the incentive problems are elsewhere uh, in the firms. However, um, in this institution, this is a nice territory to be in, um, dealing with the crooks and the spivs. Uh, but let me uh, get to slightly more delicate uh, territory, closer to home, and what about the economics profession? Well, the one thing you can say about the economics profession is it's been beating itself up pretty effectively um, recently. Uh, Paul Krugman, actually here uh, on this stage, said that economists as a group mistook beauty clad in impressive-looking mathematics for truth. They turned a blind eye to the limitations of human rationality. Uh, Willem Bauter wrote a whole column called The Unfortunate Uselessness of Most State-of-the-Art Academic Monetary Economics. Uh, however, there are others, and Anna Schwartz of uh, Friedman and Schwartz said there have been business cycles for centuries, some mild, some even severe. Why should the current one be expected to alter the views of the Chicago School? It's nice that there are some unrepentant folk uh, around uh, in the world. And Robert Lucas, uh, perhaps the grandfather of rational expectations, said, I simply see no connection between the reality of macroeconomics that these people represent and the caricature provided uh, by the critics. There is clearly absolutely no consensus in the economics profession about what went wrong. Um, I tend to think that Charles Goodhart is on the right sort of lines where uh, Charles uh, is quite neutral about these things in a lot of ways, said that his problem was that when he looked at the models, even operated by the central banks, that they excluded everything I'm interested in. Um, in other words, the behavior of the financial sector and the behavior and uncertainty and the behavior in stressed conditions, etc., are not included in this. And it seems to me there is a big issue here uh, for the economics profession to address. And linked to that, of course, is the question of the dreaded uh, efficient markets uh, hypothesis. Uh, here I feel um, somewhat torn because I was uh, trained at Stanford and in finance by someone who was a sort of arch-priest of efficient markets and who, whenever you asked a question, he would stop and say, is a form of market inefficiency being asserted here? And you would say, no, 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 no. <laughs> How could I possibly do such a thing? Uh, he was a Chicago-trained uh, guy. But it does seem to me um, that there is a problem here. Uh, Soros argues, prevailing misconception was the belief that financial markets are self-correcting should be left to their own devices. But there are some interesting responses. Uh, Eugene Farmer has said, look, you know, what are we talking about here? That actually most investing is done by active managers who absolutely have always refused to accept the efficient markets hypothesis anyway. So the notion that markets actually are driven by this efficient markets theory, which flourishes um, in the business schools and in places like the LSE, um, is nonsense because actually almost everybody in the market says it's crap. Otherwise, why would they exist? Um, and so, in fact, there's an interesting idea that suddenly you blame a theory which actually most market participants have never believed in anyway. Uh, and Ray Ball from Chicago, who is a kind of echt Chicagoan, says behavioral finance consists of a set of disjointed and inconsistent ideas, and the impact of the theory of efficient markets has proved to be durable. Here, once again, we have absolutely no uh, consensus. Uh, I personally tend to think that the work being done here, well, I guess I would think that in our uh, Center for the 
study of dysfunctionality in capital markets, which actually we did set up before the crisis, I should say, uh, funded by Paul Woolley, which attempts to take a rational framework, but, which to, but to add to it the problems of principles and agents, which actually create quite a different way in thinking about markets, is probably a better method uh, of approaching this problem uh, than to try to chuck out uh, the whole paraphernalia uh, of efficient markets and the capital asset pricing model. But this is territory, I think, where the arguments will run and run. So when we get to imponderables and when we get to arguments and mysteries that we cannot resolve, to whom do we turn? Well, to the Lord. Um, and <laughs> what does the church have to say uh, about this? Well, interestingly, Rowan Williams um, has said he was asked, and he produced one of the very few jokes, good jokes in the crisis, when he was asked who he thought was responsible for it. He said, I'd like to say Satan. <laughs> which I thought was a very good uh, response. There are very few jokes in this crisis, but there's one. Um, but basically, Rowan Williams said, as religious leaders, we want to say that the root of it is human greed. Now, you know, this sounds a bit sort of daft, um, but, and of course, you know, as other people say, uh, greed is simply the compulsion that helps anthropomorphize the capitalistic spirit. But I have to say, in, do, in working on this book, I mean, some of uh, what I wrote was kind of stuff I knew, but I did discover a few new and interesting things, and there's some interesting work done by neurologists on risk, um, which I think is quite thought-provoking. I can't say I'm an expert in this, but I do think it's quite interesting that the homeostasis of the reward-loss system, as they argue, was thrown out of balance. In other words, normally, in most parts of life, we can see rewards, but we can also see risks. You know, we can see apples that we might reach that look nicer than the ones we can reach, but we know there's a good chance we fall off the ladder and we don't go for it. And that, in fact, in this climate, when um, the markets were going crazy, when prices have been rising uh, for a very long period of time, when risk was significantly mispriced, this was thrown out of balance and that all perception of risk was removed and therefore untrammeled greed took over an investor's brains. And this greed stimulated a moral meltdown in the marketplace. It's from a very interesting um, article from something called the Forum on Public Policy, but which is essentially neurologists uh, rather than uh, economists. And I think there's kind of intuitively, there seems to me to be something in this, um, that there was uh, a point, you, you got to a point where it seemed like you couldn't fail to make money. I mean, to some extent, this is perhaps another way of describing the famous Chuck Prince observation music was playing, you had to keep dancing. In a certain way, people got into a position where it looked as if it was very easy to make money and therefore lost a sense um, of the risks that they were running. Well, we're nearly uh, at the end because that's 36. Uh, let me skip over 37 and come to the last one where it's nice to ask, uh, and the women always like this bit, uh, is the crisis just a boy thing? Uh, and there is some interesting work done in um, Scientific American, uh, an interesting article which, um, where they've looked at uh, a real live investment game um, and looked at the way people behave in that real live investment game. And there are people who will take more risk. You know, they didn't, you know, standard gambles, that kind of thing. What will you pay for a standard gamble? Uh, and that risk taking is positively correlated with testosterone levels um, and they measure that through uh, saliva they've done this in in dealing rooms and they've done this at Harvard um, and you know it look it's a macho thing uh, taking big risks in trading rooms 
the, at this, the moment, uh, the women are all feeling pretty good about this. There is a problem, however, two problems. One is that the presence of women on the trading floor ratchets up testosterone <laughs> among the men. Uh, and secondly, and this is territory I'd hesitate to get into, but uh, that's what it says. Um, uh, and it would appear that this would, of course, lead some serious problems for managers of trading rooms. There are questions you don't necessarily want to ask when you decide who's going on the derivatives desk uh, that day. Uh, but it would appear uh, that it's not just a boy thing. So where are we now? Well, I think uh, people can argue about the classifications of my boxes, but it seems to me uh, that we are in an area where we've identified some problems and we've identified some non-problems. Some of the problems are solved and some of the, not, some of the problems are unsolved and some of the non-problems are being solved too. Uh, for, and the, for example, I can find nothing really uh, in the argument that hedge funds were uh, in any way central to this crisis. And yet today, the FT is full of arguments about a wonderful new hedge fund directive in the EU, which strikes me, well, there may be some other reasons for doing something with hedge funds. The Germans don't like hedge funds anyway because they muck up their market and corporate control, but it doesn't seem to me to be much of, to do with the crisis. Similarly, short selling, there are rules in the EU. I can't find in me any strong arguments to, to think that short selling was particularly uh, important. Sorry, property trading is wrong. Actually, there's a misprint there which said, hasn't got corrected. It's proprietary trading. Personally, I don't see uh, that, that that's going to do very much either, the Volcker rule, but, you know, well, there you go. It doesn't seem to me to be a particularly serious. And the UK regulatory reform also doesn't seem to me to be about anything very much to do uh, with the crisis. Uh, but that's another arguable proposition. Um, on the solved side, well, perhaps uh, solved is slightly... Uh, exaggerated, but bank capital, clearly there are some good proposals here, and I think that will happen. The regulatory arbitrage stuff, I think regulators have got to grips with that too. Derivative transparency on both sides of the Atlantic, I think, has been improved a lot. Liquidity rules have been uh, strengthened. Maybe people, some people would argue strengthened too much. There have been approaches to bankers' incentives, um, and I think they will have some uh, difference in creating this longer-term focus, as long as they go in the areas for the right people. I think the sort of boardroom focus, to me, uh, is not probably the most, uh, the, the most persuasive one. But in the unsolved box, it seems to me global imbalances, I can't see anything uh, that is really going to prevent that happening again. Uh, the French want to put this on the agenda in the G for the G20 summit this year, but want to do so in a way that seems to me to be calculated, if anything, to make it worse, because they want to approach it from a managed exchange rate perspective. And it seems to me that it's partly having a managed exchange rate on one side of the world that created this problem. Income inequality doesn't seem to me to be changing very much. And this fundamental conundrum about the balance of monetary policy and financial stability and how you integrate financial stability into your monetary policy seems to me not to have been uh, resolved, nor has the macroprudential counter-cyclical approach to bank capital. And finally, and this is some sort of a hobby horse of mine which I haven't uh, ridden this evening, uh, but the US regulatory system has not really been changed very much at all as a result of Dodd-Frank in terms of its structure. And interestingly, the Americans produced a paper last year about the problems in their regulatory system, which identified the uh, SEC-CFTC split, uh, the fact that there's no national insurance regulator, and a whole series of other things, none of which have actually been dealt with in Dodd-Frank. So it seems to me there remains quite a significant uh, agenda uh, still to go at, and it's a pity um, that we are going at quite a lot of things which are not really uh, relevant to the crisis. Well, that's it. Are you still puzzled? I hope so, but I hope you are puzzled 
at a much more profound level of confusion uh, than before. Well, thanks, uh, Howard, for a typically magisterial and compelling presentation. I agree with most of it. I, I should start, though, with just a small warning. Um, I got to know uh, Howard best when he was solving a derivatives crisis that was bringing down councils in the 80s when he was running the Audit Commission and then again when he was setting up the Financial Services Authority. And you may have noticed that the current government is closing both of those institutions down. <laughs> so those of you who attend this university, you should perhaps be a little bit nervous. Um, <laughs> now, um, I, 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 can't, I also feel I've got to sort of slightly address um, Paul's characteristically vicious compliment. Um, the, because it does actually touch on part of what uh, Howard identified as being you know, a genuine issue when we come to think about how we learn the lessons uh, of what we've been through, and that is that we are all prone to herd-like behaviour. Um, and you know, this problem that we did just think those extraordinary years of unbroken growth and prosperity would go on forever, 92 to 2007, the longest period of... Uh, unbroken GDP growth in recorded British history. We did somehow think that, it, that, 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 that you know, the boom and bust was over uh, and bad things couldn't happen anymore. Uh, and, I mean, as it happens myself, various other journalists did warn that there were bubbles forming, but we did it in quite a vo quiet voice. I did it in my blog. I did it, uh, you know, on the radio. But, and I remember having conversations with the chap who ran television at the BBC at the time and said this is a very interesting story you know if you look at these collateralized debt obligations these credit fault swaps the way that debt is being priced you know it looks like a bubble that could really uh, explode and cause us terrible problems to which he said uh, one how are you going to explain a collateralized debt obligation on the 10 o'clock news in three minutes and b when is the when is this terrible stuff going to happen to which the answer was first question incredibly hard to explain this stuff in two and a half minutes on the 10 o'clock news uh, and, and 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 second you couldn't say when it was all going to come to an end and as a result of that and I feel genuinely sort of pretty awful about this, we didn't shout loudly early enough about what was going on, and I didn't really start shouting loudly until the summer of 2007, by which time it was far too late to do anything about it, which is why, of course, it's incredibly important that people like Howard Paul, uh, and, and I hope myself, now, in a sort of clearish way, try and you know, get a public debate about what the lessons really are, so that we don't uh, repeat this unfortunate experience too soon Again, which I suppose brings me to this issue of what we're dealing with here is the financial crisis and who's to blame and therefore how do we prevent its repetition. But what do we mean by the financial crisis? Do we mean those extraordinary weeks in the autumn of 2007 uh, after Lehman went bust when the entire financial system appeared to be going to hell in a handbasket and you know, we came incredibly close to a complete seizure of the financial system? Because I would argue that that's not actually the big thing we need to be thinking about because actually not a single depositor 
anywhere in the world lost a penny as a result of that acute crisis. But the issue for us is the, 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 the collapse into recession and the impoverishment of people who lost their jobs and to an extent the impoverishment of all of us because the trend rate of growth has slowed considerably. Uh, the Bank of England estimates that if you uh, divide the potential loss of growth as a result of that crisis, well, the potential loss of growth uh, from that crisis by the number of adults in the UK, you get to a figure of £150,000 of lost income. That's for all 50 million British adults. That's a colossal loss of income for all of us, very unequally distributed. Now, that's not actual wealth that has gone, but it is a reduction in our earning capacity. And what, what is the principal cause? It is the accumulation of debt in the economy that has to be paid down. That is what is bearing down on the growth rate. It is why uh, it, was, it, was, it was initially a, particularly an accumulation of debt within the household sector. Uh, it was the, the absolute need perceived political need in this country, in the US, in Ireland, to bail out the household sector, massive reduction uh, in uh, interest rates, big increase in public spending uh, to compensate for the demand that was falling elsewhere. Uh, and uh, also, of course, the, you had the other huge, all of which contributed, of course, to this massive increase in public sector debt, which we're now having to deal with. Uh, and, of course, the other contributor to that massive rise in public sector debt was so much of the tax revenue in the good years was generated by unsustainable turnover uh, in the financial sector. So what is, what is the price we're paying? We're paying the price we're paying is a uh, massive reduction in the public services that we're going to be getting over the next few years, just within this particular sector. There's a lot of talk, for example, that there will no longer be any subsidies for arts uh, degrees. Uh, now, that will be quite a big societal price if that is what the government ends up doing. And, and these sorts of costs are being replicated all over the place. So it does seem to me that the one, in a sense, the missing bit of all of this is what is an appropriate level of debt for an economy? If you add together household debt, corporate debt, banking sector debt, public sector debt, you get to a figure of something like 400% of GDP in the UK, 700% of GDP, GDP in an outlier like Ireland, not far from 400% in the US. We're all agreed that it's too much. But what is an equilibrium optimum amount? And how do we make sure that you know, in future we sort of manage, you know, we, ma we manage not to get above that? Now, we're putting in place it, all sorts of mechanisms to, uh, in a sense, prevent bubbles being created. And I think it will be perfectly straightforward, we hope, for this new financial policy committee at the Bank of England to recognise when lending is growing too fast and we'll, put a, and we'll put the brakes on. But we haven't had a debate about what is the sort of appropriate absolute level of debt within the economy. Now, I know you've all got lots of questions to ask, so I'm just going to make one other point relevant to Howard's presentation, which is also related to this whole issue of the accumulation of leverage, um, which is the whole issue about you know, bankers' remuneration. Um, now, one of the reasons why it may well be the case that uh, aligning bankers pay 
with shareholders' pay didn't actually ward off the crisis. It's because shareholders were just as blind about what was going on as the rest of us, as it were. So simply, you know, sim sim simply aligning pay to what appears to be, uh, you know, in, in the interests of shareholders and a share price clearly didn't do the right thing because, and this is the important point, the share price of banks rose in direct co correlation with the way that leverage within the banking system rose. The shareholders actively encouraged banks to increase the amount that they were lending and borrowing relative to their capital. Now, and that's why, in my view, uh, remuneration goes to the heart of the issue, not just on trading floors, although that is an issue, but actually at the top level on the boards of banks. If you look at the period from the mid-1980s to more or less the present day, the leverage of banks goes up as a multiple. Now, now I've talked to an audience here before, so I'm not going to labour the point, but when you increase leverage, when you increase borrowing relative to capital, it is an incredibly simple way to boost your return on capital, your profits. Right? It, it, and and, and it, is, it, it, is, it is a mechanistic thing. It does not require management skill. It does not require providing a better service to your customers or capturing market share or doing all those competitive things that you want good companies to do. It is simply a way of uh, increasing risk. Uh, uh, and if you're lucky enough to be doing it in a time where perceptions of risk of the risks that, people, that, that the institutions are taking are diminishing, and you were lucky enough to have a set of capital rules that allow you to disguise the risk, which I'm afraid is the, you know, the other flaw which Howard alluded to in the Basel rules, which were then uh, taken up by more or less every important regulator across the world, then you can... Then, then, then sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, but that you, then broadly what's happening is that you have a situation where the bank's profits are increasing tremendously. Uh, the, the increasing risks that the, that the banks are taking are not perceived, but of course this feeds through both the share price performance in the short term and massively increased remuneration of those running banks. And that is the incentive for what they did, and that is why, in my view, remuneration is an important issue. Um, now, uh, I think that's probably enough from me. Uh, are you going to say a few more words? You're just going to throw it out. No, I'm going to throw it out. Thank you very yeah. much, Robert. I've done two things that are wrong, or I'm about to do the second one. The first one, I failed to tell you where the exits were, if there's any alarm, so they're at the back somewhere. Um, uh, secondly, to pick up on Robert's point about remuneration, my own view is that regulators are wrong to oblige banks to pay remuneration in equity. They should oblige banks to pay remuneration to senior executives and traders in subordinated debt so they take the first hit uh, if there's a failure. That protects the system. Um, we've got 30 minutes for questions, after which Howard is going to um, defy um, the weakness of Tony Blair and the risk of having sh uh, shoes thrown at him, and he's going to sign copies of his books for those uh, who, uh, who would like to do that. Uh, so um, there are people around with the microphones. Can I have the first question? And can you say who you are? Uh, when you ask the question. There's a gentleman down here in the fourth row. Microphone, one, back, one row back. There we are. Hi, Charles, Charles Rotsford from McKinsey. Howard, thank you for a fascinating and very entertaining talk. Uh, amongst your list of villains, 
you didn't list the integrated bank model, the combination of retail and investment banking, and we've just launched a year-long inquiry into that. So I wondered where your thoughts were and what your thoughts were about the Vickers Commission overall. Uh, um, the thing that strikes me, if you look at the uh, casualties in the crisis and the relative successes, that there doesn't seem to me to be a very strong correlation between any particular industry structure and success or failure. Uh, in that, you know, you had five pure play investment banks, if you like, uh, two of which went bust, one had to be rescued, and two, you know, one has uh, got into trouble because it's been too successful, and uh, the other one sort of struggles on. Um, and if you look at the universal banks, uh, you can see, you know, UBS uh, got into serious difficulty. If we'd all sat around here three years ago and I'd said to you, which bank in the world is most like UBS, you'd have said Credit Suisse, and Credit Suisse did really rather well. So in terms of the sort of, you know, is there a, is there a particular structure which, um, you know, which guarantees success or guarantees failure seems to me to be not the case. Now, is there an issue about uh, using um, retail deposits to uh, support um, capital, capital market activity? Well, I think there may be. The question is, how is the best to deal with that? My own view it, is it's best to deal with it through kind of ring-fencing parts of the bank and, and using the capital regime to do that rather than uh, deciding on a particular market structure. And um, one reason I say that is because I think that there could be a danger in generally in the government redesigning the financial system for us uh, because also you then imply the bits that you've decided you know, you, you take some bits off and then you leave some bits and you imply that they're definitely guaranteed completely because, you know, you've, de you've deemed them to be doing safe things. And I'm rather nervous about that. All that said, you know, there's some interesting people on this commission and they're no doubt going to do a lot more work on it than I've done. And so I retain an open mind. They've asked some interesting questions in their first paper that came out last week. So I'll be interested to see what they come up with. But I guess if I were forced to give an answer now, that would be what I'd give question. I, and I can suggest that if I don't call you immediately for the question, if you've got a question, keep your hand up and then we'll get the microphone to you so we can get you very quickly. There's a lady in the back um, on, and then I'll go upstairs for somebody. A couple of people in the middle there, if you can get the microphones over there. Thank you. Yes. Hi, it's Philip Leighton-Jones from Financial News. Um, Robert, you touched on it, but I'm not sure um, if they're among your villains. Um, which are the traditional fund managers who saw these earnings rising as the balance sheets were being loaded up with debt? And it's, a, as you say, a very sort of simple sign that, that earnings are, 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 are being increased, but at the expense of real shareholder value. Why aren't the fund managers being held more to account for this? Because it's their job, surely, to sort of say, there are warning signs here, there are danger signs that things are probably going wrong, and these companies from whom we're enjoying very good earnings are probably not doing it in the right way, or, or these earnings are not sustainable. Uh, I, I, I'm going to uh, bounce this back to Paul to some extent, but let me, I mean, I don't, I, there isn't a sort of a little chapter entirely on fund managers, but where I do make the point is that I do have a, a a section looking at the responsibilities of boards. And it does seem to me that one important point about that is 
that there was just no shareholder pressure on the boards of these institutions to worry about what they were doing. And I think that the effectiveness of boards, and I'm not trying to say boards were, were brilliant in this crisis. I mean, clearly some failed, and you know, I ask myself sometimes what, you know, what I was doing. But um, I've got good answers, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I do think that you know, it's hard for boards to be fully effective unless there is some shareholder pressure and shareholder engagement. Um, and there was really none, let me tell you, absolutely none, as far as I was aware. But Paul's spoken and written more about this than I have. Yeah, I, briefly, um, I mean, Howard asked, why do people in the fund management industry um, not challenge the efficient market hypothesis? The answer, Howard, is they get extremely well paid whilst they hold it in suspense. Uh, many, many fund managers conclude that actually it's extraordinarily difficult to produce um, active returns. There are very few talented fund managers who manage to do that. And I've talked about the ownerless corporation. One of the consequences of the efficient market hypothesis and CAPM in, com in combination, plus the actuary's pressure to capture the asset effect of superior equity returns, is to have broadly distributed portfolios which lead to nobody really thinking and, and, and behaving uh, like an owner. We've got a gentleman in the third row there and then um, a gentleman over there. Um. Good evening. I have a question. I, I am an LSC alumnus. <coughs> I have a question for uh, Sir Howard Davis. <coughs> uh, this was this is regarding the Basel III agreement, uh, or you know, the regulation that was uh, recently passed. Um, I had an argument with a uh, with, with with a friend of mine who works in the banking industry. You and I do work in the banking industry, uh, and uh, his his point of view was that. Uh, you know, with the increase in the, you know the capital requirement in in, in the banks, uh, will actually make you know the banks more you know or you know the people who uh, you know manage the capital within the bank or who are responsible for the profits or revenue within the bank to actually be you know much more uh, um, uh, what do you call uh, risk uh, loving in in a way that uh, you know it it would kind of encourage. Uh, a perverse incentive for them to, uh, to kind of take more risk because now they have uh, the same pot of money that they had earlier uh, with, with, you know, with, uh, with, with uh, an additional requirement to actually you know, pay back, to have a burden of paying back more to the, you know, to the, to the shareholders. So you know, how would you yeah. say yeah. that? Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean it is, an interesting, um, it is an interesting argument that actually. I think that it applies um, it, it can apply if basically what you do is have a capital requirement and just and a leverage ratio. I mean, then you do create an incentive because you say, well, you can only leverage your capital 12 times, and therefore you do have an incentive to choose the riskiest assets in order to increase your returns, which is why a pure leverage ratio approach, I think, is faulty. However, the Basel III is a bit more sensible than that, and essentially it based on risk-weighted assets. So the amount of capital you have to apply to your assets depends on which risk bucket they are put in. Uh, and therefore, if you uh, essentially lend only to uh, governments, uh, unless of course you lend to the Greek one, which is a slightly different question, but uh, if you all you know, put all your money in government in German bunds, then you have to have a lower capital requirement than if you put all your money in uh, risky property ventures. So the risk-weighted assets denominator uh, is meant to solve that problem of giving people a perverse incentive 
to increase it. If you do it that way, you don't have that perverse incentive. If you do it purely on a leverage ratio, then you do. But I, I think that what's proposed now doesn't, doesn't seem to me to fall on that fence. Gentlemen, in the orange shadow, then, there's a lady up there somewhere right at the back. Thank you. Um, good evening, sir. Um, thank you for uh, an extremely um, elucidating and uh, brilliantly funny um, presentation as well. Be one of your um, students, huh? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you can have a first. That's <laughs> my my question goes back to those uh, unsolved problems that you brilliantly put on your uh, one of your last um, <laughs> slides uh, about global um, about global imbalances and income inequalities that featured prominently on your list of those problems that haven't been addressed yet. Now. Some would argue that those two things are related to the way in which uh, market-based capitalism operates. And both are the first one, the global imbalances, could be seen as a reflection of uh, global uneven development uh, that's happening around the world. The second one, obviously, goes without saying, income inequality that market capitalism kind of produces and reproduces. Um, so my question really is how to, how to solve this. How, how can you see this problem being solved within the framework of the capitalist economy, um, if, if at all possible? Thank you. Yeah, well, uh, that, that's a very fundamental sort of questions in a way. But let me just give two very brief answers to, to it. One is that it does seem to me, and this is actually goes back to a little bit of what uh, Robert said really about debt that both the US and the Chinese economy, to simplify this argument a little bit, it seems to me have learnt a, an interesting lesson about risk. That the Americans have learnt that a, an economic model, a model of growth that's built on rising leverage um, and uh, not worrying at all about your balance of payments deficits and your fiscal deficit really either, uh, is a risky one. Um, that it may look as though it's great for a while, but then it can make a horrible crash at a certain point. And similarly, I think the Chinese have learned that a, a model of growth that is based uh, on very, very high levels of investment and an export-led model is also very risky. And in fact, you hear you know, Wen Jiabao said something very similar uh, to this just a, a week or two ago. Um, and that both, therefore, the optimist in me says that both sides of this um, have an incentive to alter that. Um, that, from a Chinese point of view, you, you don't want to get back into a position where your growth is you know, vulnerable to a sudden default, it's a sudden change in mood somewhere else. And similarly, uh, the Americans shouldn't want to get themselves back in that position. So I think both sides have got an incentive to rebalance these things, and it is possible. There are various things you can do, and some of them actually are on the exchange rate in the case of China, which you can do to rebalance. Uh, so I, you know, the optimist says that we should have learned that lesson and there should be an incentive to do something about it. Unfortunately, at the moment, you can't see a great deal of progress. A lady in the back row there and then a lady in the front row here. Um, thank you. I'm Zhang Hong from China's Caixi Media. I would like to ask a question about the financial transaction tax because, um, uh, of course, this is a rather ambiguous term, but um, it seems to me the IMF's position about that is that, um, at least we should have a financial activity tax. And on top of that, we can discuss about um, whether we should have a tax on um, all the trans financial transactions or at least 
on the, a certain type of um, currency trading. So I wonder what's your view on that. Thank you. Uh, somebody's rather has passed the buck to, to me on this one. I mean, I think the only point, I, the only thing I, that is worth pointing out about this whole debate about um, a financial activity tax is it seems to me that there's not a lot of evidence that if there were significantly fewer financial transactions, the world would be a lot worse off. Uh, if you simply look at the kind of growth rates that the world enjoyed in the 1960s, when there were not only fewer financial transactions, but I mean, you know, it was uh, so, so, you know, relative to GDP, the, the level of financial transaction was minuscule in the 60s compared to where it is today. Uh, and, you know, there is absolutely no evidence that the world, in terms of all of us, suffered. Uh, increases in our incomes, increase, uh, you, know, uh, 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 you know, genuine wealth creation uh, by countries. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem to me that, that, that um, there is an obviously massive downside were there to be a financial transaction tax implemented globally. The, re you know, the problem is that if it is only implemented in selective markets, there is a fear uh, in countries like ours, if we implemented it here, that you know, all sorts of very you know, jolly valuable firms uh, would relocate elsewhere, uh, and then you have to make a judgment about what you mean by jolly valuable firms, uh, uh, and, and whether we care desperately much if certain kinds of traders and speculators move elsewhere. But, and that is a sort of societal judgment that you, have to, that you have to make, and you also have to make a judgment about if you're going to lose a, bit of tax a little bit of tax revenue from the employment they create, uh, whether you're going to be able to make it up elsewhere. Um, so I mean, I, I, I think it is slightly odd that, uh, I wouldn't put it more strongly than that, that this government does seem to be not very keen on a financial transactions tax because, you know, if you could get global agreement, uh, in the short to medium term, you'd certainly raise a lot of money. In the long term, you know, if, if, if the revenue diminished as financial transactions diminished, so what? Uh, a lady there and then a gentleman over there. Okay. Uh, Kate, I, I've worked in the city for many years and I agree with uh, Howard that the... That that the accountants uh, have not been uh, brought to book, that they did have quite a bit to do with this, more particularly how they handled special purpose vehicles, where you're allowed to park your liabilities off your balance sheet, and therefore, when you're looking at leverage, you're not really looking at the full role of liability, uh, the full liabilities of the banks. And what is the current regulators doing about this? Yeah, well, I think that's right, uh, but I don't. I, you know, I think the accountants and regulators probably together share responsibility for this because the issue was, yep, the issue was um, uh, whether uh, you know th these met the test for being off balance sheet, and the the economic test for being an off off balance sheet should be that there is no recourse and that you can't imagine circumstances in which the banks would have to bail them out, and the answer was that um, the circumstances were present where the banks did have to bail them out for two reasons. Well, sometimes there were legal reasons, actually. There were some recourse arrangements which should have been captured by the auditors, I think. But there were other, two other reasons. One was reputational, that you know, the banks had set these things up and they just couldn't imagine walking away from them. Uh, but the other was a point I've just alluded to briefly in my speech, that 
you know, if you allowed some of these to go down, the effect on the prices of assets you did have on your balance sheet would have been so catastrophic that you essentially had to bail them out. Um, so uh, essentially, I think that in future, regulators will adopt a much more kind of economic rather than regulatory approach. And if it walks like a duck and it you know, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And therefore, it will be counted as on balance sheet. I'm going to take three more questions. The gentleman over there, a gentleman at the back, and a gentleman at the back there. And that, uh, uh, so for the rest of you, I'm sorry that uh, I'm not going to be able to call your questions. But Yes, thank you very much for this. Uh, actually, I find very informative uh, 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 lecture because uh, I'm from NBGI private equity, but I worked with Marcus before for about 15 years throughout that process. And the question which has not been very much um, discussed and somehow is, I think has been ducked in the past is that banking itself, it is a business un unlike uh, the industry, which requires uh, full trust from the people, the depositors, and the government calls upon everybody to trust that system. The question which accrues from that, and I haven't personally received explanation, is that uh, the, the, the regulators and the, all the other organizations, including the rating agencies, in that kind of environment, they have a much bigger uh, part of the blame possibly to answer for. And we haven't seen that much being sort of said or aired into the recrimination process that has followed and the 39 different causes that you have said in your book. And the other thing which I would like to ask Robert is we trusted the government and now we trust the US and the UK for bailing out the banks. Do you foresee a possibility or a timing that investors would not trust this, the last resort? Yes, I'm going to take the other two questions and then we'll, um, we'll give, a, uh, as we do at Labour Party conferences, a composite motion response. <laughs> I rushed down from Manchester and hope you think I'm being disloyal. Uh, My name is Joe Jones. Um, just, I want to draw on something that I think has been sort of overlooked from part of a lot of this crisis, one of the costs to the rest of society that one of our friends from the BBC might have alluded to, um, that... Um, do we feel it's legitimate and reasonable that savers have actually uh, taken part in building up uh, banks' balance sheets from when the damage they were, um, bearing in mind that um, the, the cost to savers now, right, and allowing for the fact that the Bank of England is unlikely to raise interest rates until inflation is even higher. So the net cost to savers will be individual savers, I'm thinking of now, right, is going to be to the, well, uh, one can only has work out roughly what it might be, but I should think it would be quite tremendous. Thank you, sir. And very last question in the back row there. Um, George Zuros here at the LSE. Um, I was reading in the introduction um, a place where you're actually saying a lot of people don't like to accept any blame. Um, so I was wondering, um, it seemed to me that the, um, uh, the common theme in all these people that you mentioned, be them bankers or regulators, or economists was that um, they did not appreciate um, the, some of the consequences that some of the actions would have. Um, so I was wondering if we could identify a common element in all of them, and that would be education in uh, higher education institutes like the LSE. Um, there's a um, 
There's a piece in the David Hare play, The Power of Yes at the National, where somebody does say uh, the common feature of all of these people is that they um, were educated at the LSE and worked at Goldman Sachs. And there's a sort of, there is an element uh, of truth in that. Um, but uh, no, I don't, think, uh, I don't think the LSE can be um, uniquely to blame uh, for this, uh, actually. Uh, though uh, I'm sure that um, there are aspects of the teaching in our finance department and our economics department that people are, are thinking about. And that just to be clear, one thing that we have done, which I think is the only uh, academic institution that has done this, is we've actually, as of this year, introduced a complete uh, new course, which all our students will be obliged to take, which is called uh, LSE 100, Understanding the Causes of Things. And we think that we should push all our students through arguing about some of the big issues, one of them being climate change, but another one, uh, which I'll be teaching myself, is on, um, uh, on the financial crisis. We think everybody should sort of address this because it's sufficiently important that people should think about it and develop their own sort of point of view about what we want. And because I think we would all recognize that you know, there are societal questions at the bottom of this. So you know, we have done something quite specific um, which every LSE student will now be doing. Uh, on the other two issues, and uh, Robert will pick up the last one, I think. I mean, you, I think you're right about the, um, uh, the, the penalties to savers uh, at present. In fact, actually, the, the, the interest rates, the actual interest rates paid to savers are not quite as bad as you might think from the Bank of England, because in fact, there's quite a bit of competition for savers' money at the moment among the, the banks, so that you know, there are people prepared to pay a bit more than that. Uh, but undoubtedly, uh, for a while, um, income of savers is, is falling, and they are part of the, the payment mechanism for um, recovering from this crisis. Um, on the why, I, I mean, I think I understood you to ask why regulators weren't getting a bigger share of the blame. I mean, I think the regulators feel they've had quite a bit, actually. Um, and uh, I think that they do feel rather sort of bruised, particularly since they were you know, operating in a climate where no one was actually encouraging them to be more aggressive uh, to the banks uh, in the build-up to the crisis. In fact, the whole sort of cultural and political mood um, was rather anti-regulatory. Paul and I were discussing this just beforehand, and um, the last big dispute, which actually wasn't in my time, between the government and the uh, FSA was when uh, Tony Blair made a speech saying that the FSA should get off the backs of people. Um, and the chairman had to make a complaint to him and say, you know, just a minute, what, how are you coming out with this? So, I mean, it was not as if the regulators, I think, were not doing a job that the politicians wanted them to do. They were, I think the two were, were singing from the same song sheet there. But can, can, I ask, can I ask a supplementary as agreement, Robert, in? Robert, how do regulators and government deal with the powerful and highly effective banking lobby? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a huge and resonant issue. I mean, if you're, one of the things that I do find utterly puzzling uh, is that, uh, you know, we do continue to stand behind uh, these banks. I mean, there is no doubt that if uh, the British government, uh, the American government, and, you know, various other governments, you know, you know announced tomorrow that no bank would be propped up by taxpayers if it got into trouble, uh, quite a few banks would fall over because they could not fund themselves in the commercial markets. Uh, 
And it, it does seem to me slightly odd that in, in those circumstances that politicians, uh, you know, don't feel braver in simply telling banks either to do certain things or not to do certain things, such as, you know, paying enormous bonuses to people who many people feel got us into this crisis. Um, so, I, I mean, the, one of the things that um, the Governor Bank of England uh, has said on a number of occasions, I mean, also slightly surprised that it hasn't sort of slightly resonated more, but he has on a number of occasions said that he finds it very odd, given the pain that's been inflicted on, you know, societies like ours, that people aren't angrier about this. And I must say, I, must say, I am slightly bemused uh, by uh, that. I mean, to, just to, um, and, and it really goes to the point that the gentleman over there made. Uh, I mean, because we are at the stage where it is not completely mad to worry about the quality of the credit that stands behind banks, i.e. the quality of the governments, not just our, but many governments' credit, and the question of whether or not we can genuinely afford to bail these institutions out. The issue of size of banks, you know, whether or not these banks are now too big to save, is a very, very important one. I was in Ireland on Friday talking to the Irish finance minister, and I was genuinely shocked that here is a man whose banks were funded to the tune of 700 billion euros by overseas banks, which allowed those banks to go on a lending spree that has tipped the Irish economy into the most appalling recession. I mean, it contracted last year by 10%. There's 13% unemployment. And he dare not... But, you know, he dare not suggest that those lenders should suffer a penny, a cent of loss, because he's terrified that if he, uh, you know, forces these banks that have lent to Irish banks, uh, if he forces any losses on them, they will simply withdraw all credit from the Irish economy and they'll fall over. Now, this is a completely unsustainable uh, position to be in. Uh, so, um, no, I, th I, I, I do uh, think that there are, you know, there are some huge, big issues that we've got to resolve. But one, though, I think the point just to put uh, how it is, is having looked in some detail about who's to blame for the crisis, I think there's a much greater correlation with Harvard Business School alumni than there is with LSE alumni. So <laughs> I think you can rest easy. Um, Thank you very much. It's been an extraordinarily interesting session, and uh, this is an extraordinarily good book. Um, Howard, thank you very much. Robert, thank you.